I come to the conversation as someone who's a survivor. Uh, at the age of 17, I was nearly killed after being shot in the throat with a, a 38 caliber bullet. You're listening to Talking About Guns, or TAG, as we like to call it. My name is Matt Littman, and I'm executive director of 97%. We're a new bipartisan organization working to reduce gun deaths in America. As part of our mission to change the conversation around gun safety, TAG normalizes dialogue about guns. We invite guests from all sides of the gun debate and talk about the hot-button issues, but without the screaming. Later in this episode, Dr. Michael Siegel, a renowned researcher and professor at Tufts University, joins us for another edition of Siegel's Scope, where he explains what it would actually mean to treat gun violence as a public health issue. But first, not only is my guest today a gun violence survivor who nearly lost his life due to a stray bullet, but he's also a renowned trauma surgeon who treats victims of gun violence. In addition to serving as director of emergency surgery at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, Dr. Joe Sacron is an outspoken advocate for gun violence prevention who has testified before Congress twice and has pioneered research on a physician's role in educating patients about safe gun storage. It's my pleasure to welcome him to the program today. Dr. Joe Sacron, welcome to TAC. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. So you're a little bit different than everybody else that we've spoken to in that you're an actual trauma surgeon. And when I think about um, this, what you've been doing, and I think about this is our lane, and I'm reminded of, um, do you remember when Laura Ingram at Fox News told the basketball players to shut up and dribble, right? Correct. To yeah. not do any- and I'm reminded of that with you because explain what happened, how you were told to basically stay in your lane and then you did something about it. Yeah. So, you know, look, um, I, I come to this conversation, of course, like you said, as a trauma surgeon, but also someone that's a survivor. And, you know, in 2018, essentially the NRA um, came out and said that doctors should stay in their lane as it relates to coming up with solutions around gun violence prevention. Now, of course, we are, you know, the ones at the center of, you know, this problem, taking care of these patients, having to talk to the moms and dads and explain to them that their child that left that morning is never coming home again. So you can imagine how incensed we were when we heard that. And so uh, a lot of us, and not just doctors, but nurses and researchers and really the entire healthcare community came up and said, no, actually it is our lane. And I think, you know, it was very different this time because it wasn't just the fact that a lot of us united and were speaking out against the public health problem that we're facing and that so many of us are seeing in our trauma centers. But we told the stories of our patients, you know, and some people even showed the pictures. And I think for the first time, it kind of peeled back that curtain and allowed the American people to understand what we're facing day in and day out. So how was it, though, when you say you talked to all these other people and decided this is our lane, right? That was the thing you sent out. Yeah. How did is everybody on like an email chain and you all get together and talk about it? How did you decide that you were going to do something? Well, honestly, there was a, a lot of stuff going back and forth on social media. I had a couple, you know, close colleagues that I was talking with kind of behind the scenes. And I, I just, you know, was seeing all this chatter go back and forth. And I said, you know what? I said, like, enough's enough. Like, we need to, like, mobilize in a more organized fashion. 
And so that's when I created the Twitter handle, this is our lane. And and to be honest with you, I had no idea what was going to happen with it. You know, I kind of created it thinking that, okay, maybe it'll gain some traction. And then next thing I know, it just exploded. And again, it wasn't just me and it wasn't just doctors. It was the power of this was the collective kind of group of individuals that came together. And, and I think what's really interesting is anyone that understands the complexity of this problem will realize that no one person or one organization is going to be able to solve it on their own and there's no one solution. And if you don't understand that either you're not, you don't really serious about taking care of the problem or you're, I think, a little bit disingenuous about about trying to tackle this and make communities safer. Well, it's interesting because you're somebody who individually is finding more than one solution, right? So you're a trauma surgeon. You have This Is Our Lane. You write about gun issues. You talk about research and try to get more research. But explain, if you will, I hope you don't mind, but you were shot yourself. Yeah. So, you know, like we were kind of mentioning earlier, I come to the conversation as someone who's a survivor. Uh, at the age of 17, I was nearly killed after being shot in the throat with a, a 38 caliber bullet. And um, I don't know how you were when you were 17, but I think most 17-year-olds, you know, we don't realize we're mortal. We have perhaps no idea what we want to do in life. And that incident really inspired me, um, inspired me to, to go into medicine. And frankly, the initial inspiration was to give other people the same second chance that, that I was given, right? And what ended up happening as I started to kind of go down this professional path was to realize that, you know, um, despite how good I think I am as a trauma surgeon, despite how incredible our healthcare system or our trauma center may be, the best medical treatment is prevention. There's very little that I can do with one shot in the head. And that's why I started thinking about this really at the intersection of medicine, public health, and public policy where we focus beyond simply the operating room or the trauma center. So are you focus, Are you thinking about all this as you're going through medical school? Because this is a lot of work that you're doing. When did you decide that you were going to cover this, all these areas? Yeah. So I definitely, yeah, I don't want to send that impression because I don't, that's, it just didn't work out that way. Initially, like my focus in medical school was, you know, just, I said, man, if I could operate on someone who's like shot in the neck and like saved their life. Okay. I've made it. I've really been able to make a difference. And then as I, as I finished medical school and my general surgery training, um, I think when things changed was when I was at the university of Pennsylvania and I, I was there in fellowship doing trauma critical care. And I'll never forget, you know, I always thought like, who would care about my story? You know, okay. Guy that's been shot in the throat. And we used to give these kids from Philadelphia and the surrounding community kind of this, experience at our trauma center. We give them a tour of the trauma center. And then I talked to them about gun violence. And the first time I did this, you know, I mean, they're 14, 15 year old kids. So they're kind of paying attention, but, but not really. Right. And I hadn't told them my story yet. And I went ahead and I told them my story. And when I did, what happened is I went from being this guy wearing a white coat to someone that these kids could relate with because that's what they're facing in their communities day in and day out. And that's like the first time it made me realize kind of the power of my own story. And the 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 more I started to understand that and the more I started to face 
frankly, these moms and dads that there was like literally like nothing that I could do to save their kid, say, you know, a gunshot wound to the brain, right? There's very little that you're going to be able to do to bring them back to baseline. I started realizing that we had to think about this differently. And that's what pushed me to kind of broaden my scope. Um, even though I love operating, what I love nothing more is to be able to prevent these injuries. And that's what took me to the Kennedy School and spent a year doing public policy there. And it's why I spent a year in the U.S. Senate with uh, Senator Maggie Hassan trying to understand the practicalities of, of how legislation works and, and how to get things done uh, at a population level. So you're involved in many different aspects, but in Baltimore, where you are, as a trauma surgeon, I think gun violence is up something like 10% over last year. Uh, it's an incredible problem in the city that you're in. How do you even cope with that? You're seeing all these terrible things where you are. Yeah, it, it's absolutely horrific. I mean, when you think about what's happened, there's over 300 right deaths that happened in Baltimore on an annual basis over the past seven years. And those are just the deaths. They don't even account for the non-fatal injuries, which often, frankly, people don't think about, but there were 720 plus non-fatal injuries last year. And I, I think, you know, what I think about often in Baltimore is the fact that as a, as a nation, we talk about this public health problem as it's centered around the mass shootings that so often get a lot of the media attention. But what I'm seeing is the every, everyday toll of gun violence. And it's this dis disproportionate impact on young brown and black men that are being slaughtered, you know, in cities like mine in Baltimore, but also in Philadelphia and Chicago and L.A. And so, you know, I've always felt like we have both the opportunity and the responsibility to tell those stories and make sure we elevate what's happening and to try to make the community, right, the people that are closest to the struggle, right? as part of the solution, because those that are closest to the struggle understand the solutions that are needed. And so really trying to elevate those voices and work in partnership with, with the community to try to move the needle forward. So then you, you talk to these parents and the kids about gun violence, and then you're seeing the daily toll of gun violence, but somehow you managed to also, while you're incredibly busy doing that, Focus on areas you mentioned becoming sort of an authority on legislation. How do you even have time to do all this, number one? And what are you seeing? You just saw the president signed into law a bunch of new pieces of, of gun safety legislation. You're helpful in moving that whole process forward. Do you think that that's big progress? Do you think it's enough progress? Where do you stand? Yeah, well, let me let me tackle those uh, separately. So the yeah. first part. Um, uh, of your question, I'll say the way, I mean, it's almost like working two full-time jobs and, you know, we often don't talk about failure, but, but let me for a second talk about failure because I think that, um, my kind of inspiration and motivation to do, you know, these things to try to make a difference in the lives of other people has resulted in frankly, neglecting my own personal life. And, uh, you know, Again, I, I feel like, you know, a, a lot of us don't often, you know, reflect back and think about, you know, what we can do better. And I, it's something that I've been spending a lot of time recently um, trying to kind of peel back the layers and think about how to find that balance a little bit better. 
because as you allude to, it's it's hard to do all those things, and something has to give. And and what's what's really been impacted is is my ability to focus, you know, on myself and family. And so that's something I'm trying to do a better job at. Yeah, um, I would think I saw um you know our friend Fred Gutenberg. Yeah, for example, he was a Dunkin' Donuts franchise guy who his daughter was killed at Parkland. And now he's been traveling and working on legislation for the last few years. He has a wife, he has a kid. Um, you know, I would think that the amount of time that you're, that he spends on this as an example is a sacrifice for his family as well. And you're doing a similar thing, which is you have a incredibly stressful job and yet you're somehow managing to do all of this other work at the same time. That's a lot to take on. Yeah, it, it it definitely is. And, you know, Fred, who's a a dear friend, as you know, I mean, I think, you know, to be able to take, you know, the pain that, you know, any parent experiences from the loss of a child, from the murder of a child. Um, I just, I just, you know, I look up to him and so many of the parents for being able to do that because it's, it's the most difficult thing ever. And yeah, it, it's about finding that balance. And it's about you know, of course, doing this work because you're trying to make sure that these type of injuries and deaths don't happen to other individuals and other communities. Right. But at the same time, you also have to realize that some of the time has to be dedicated to your own kind of right. personal life and family. And I think trying to find that balance actually, you know, it makes you more successful professionally. So I'm not sure I've I've found the right recipe yet, but I'm trying to work on right. that. Right, we're all and we're then, all imperfect, doctor. <laughs> yeah. So, and but when the, we t- when we talk about this is our lane, for example, yeah. you can't do everything. You right. can do some things. So, what would you say, the in terms of the legislation that just passed? Do you feel that you had an area where you were particularly imp- impactful? Yeah. So the so the legislation that just passed. I mean, of course, I think. First and foremost, we have to, you know, commend um, uh, President Biden and the administration for really keeping gun violence prevention as a central part of the of the priority, right? And and we saw this through, you know, not just what happened throughout the campaign, but also the executive actions taken forward, the utilization of the bully pulpit to to talk about this issue, and and finally, after nearly thirty years, being able to, you know, pass some common sense pieces of legislation. And, and I, when I look at this legislation, there, there's a couple things that I think are, of course, you know, historic, is the fact that we were able to finally get, at a time that probably is more divided than ever, you know, 10 Democratic senators and 10 Republican senators in the room to agree about a topic that, frankly, has been very controversial. But I think that agreement also um, goes beyond simply you know, those walls of the discussions that were being had, because it it underscores the commonality that exists among us as Americans, which often people don't get to see because all you see is, you know, people going back and forth on social media. And the reality is, is that we have a lot more in common than we have that divides us. And I think, I think that was really, that was really clear. Look, there were a number of pieces of that legislation that were incredibly important as, as I, I, I'm the vice chair of the board of directors for Brady United and, you know, Brady, along with a lot of other organizations, were critically involved in making sure that even though we weren't going to get everything, we didn't get a watered down version uh, of the bill. 
And I think that's what happened. And I think what's really important for people to understand is, yes, it didn't include everything, but that bill is going to save lives. Right. And that's a first step to really being able to approach this public health problem in a way that's multifaceted. And if you think about, like, historically, the reason, you know, that people, you know, when you look at, like, the gun lobby, for example, and why nothing has been, you know, they haven't supported anything. Essentially, there's been this disparity that exists between the leadership of the gun lobby and the membership, right? The leadership has not represented the views of the member. And I think it's because they realized that if anything passed, it was going to be a turning point for what happened in future legislation. And I, and I think I think that's exactly what's going to happen is people realize that we have to, you know, move forward and pass further common sense legislation in order to make communities safe. So, well, two, a couple of things. One is um, you talked about the Republican senators and Democratic senators who got together. Sixty two percent of Americans, a poll just came out, favored the legislation that just passed. So that's nearly two thirds. That is very infrequent to get that many people favoring legislation, especially significant. But for you specifically, what do you think is the area where you're most effective when you're dealing with legislators and you, doctor, absent the entire Brady campaign, which does a lot of advocacy, where are you the most effective? I think where I'm the most effective is being able to explain to policymakers what we're seeing on the front lines as someone who's a trauma surgeon as someone who's having to take care of these devastating, you know, injuries and make one methodical decision after the other to, to try to save someone's life. And I I think the other piece as it relates to kind of the injuries that we're seeing is also like the families. Like, I think sometimes we forget that these aren't just numbers and statistics, like the people that we're taking care of are, are for someone's mom, dad, brother, sister, right? They're part of the social fabric of our of our community, and and bringing that real perspective, I think, resonates because everyone, you know, like can understand perhaps, you know, how important their loved ones are to them, and that they would not want to see them go through something so tragic and senseless. Well, are you able, doctor, to meet with people on both sides of the aisle when you talk about what's going on in the trauma room and the work you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know. I, I talk about this issue all across the country, and I was just in Arizona actually discussing this. And you know what's interesting is when I go to places and have these conversations with people that that may not necessarily you know think the way I think or agree with everything I say, what stands out is the commonality that exists. And gun owners will often come up and say, "Hey, Joe, you know what? Like, we didn't agree with 100% of what." you were saying, but we agreed with like 95% of it. And to me, that like, I think demonstrates the, the type of consensus that we need to work towards. I mean, you gave that one example of, of the recent poll that came out regarding the legislation, but look at things like expanded background checks where over 90% of Americans agree upon it. I mean, I can't think of anything that 90% of Americans agree upon. So absolutely. And I think the conversations actually that, that I have with people you know, across the aisle are more impactful than the ones where I'm having where someone already thinks the way I think, because then you can explore and understand, you know, why they may think differently and how we kind of get to that end result that we all want to see. Universal background checks is probably the most popular idea that we could even think of. But I think what we see, doctor, is very often the loudest voices that disagree are the ones that get heard. 
And I think what we're trying to do, and probably you as well, is make sure that everybody is heard. Because most people, as you're saying, when you were in Arizona, for example, agree that there are certain things that need to be done. No one wants to see kids dying in schools. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. I mean, no one wants to see that. And I think this is like, goes back to the end result is not necessarily so different. I think what's different is how do we get to that end result? And that's where some of the ideological differences come out. And, and, and what I'll tell you is, you know, that, you know, my year in the U.S. Senate, I can tell you that both Democratic and Republican staffers, I think, truly, you know, came in every day trying to make America, you know, a better place. That doesn't always often get seen. Absolutely. But I think, you know, that the importance of bipartisanship and, and, and how we have to really go back to working together to make the best possible legislation is so critical and vital for our democracy. I agree with you, doctor. I think it's okay to disagree. It's not okay yeah. to question everybody's motives all the time. Most yeah. of the time, as you said earlier in the conversation, we actually do agree on many of the issues. Before I let you go, uh, we ask guests whenever they come on our program to tag somebody that they'd like to see us interview at some later date. Can you tag somebody that you'd like to see us interview? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I would love um, to see you interview uh, LJ Punch. LJ Punch is happens to also be a trauma surgeon, but they've been working in the community in ways that I think are so innovative and, and think about this issue in a very different way. So I think LJ would be a terrific um, uh, person to interview and I'm happy to connect you with them. We're going to do that. Okay, doctor, thanks so much for your time. I know you're very busy. I want to make sure you have time for your personal life. Have a great day today. It's great to talk to you, doctor. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks okay. so much for having me. Thanks. Great to be here. And now we welcome Dr. Michael Siegel for another edition of Siegel Scope. Thank you, Matt. And welcome to another edition of Siegel Scope. Today, I want to talk about what it means to consider gun violence as a public health issue. This has been talked about a lot recently. A lot of people have thrown this around saying, hey, we have to treat gun violence like a public health issue. But no one has explained really what does that mean? What does it mean to say that gun violence is a public health issue? And to me, it means three things. First of all, a public health issue is one where we say this is not acceptable. In order for this to be treated as a public health issue, we have to basically say that we are not okay with the level of gun violence that we are facing and essentially make a permanent commitment to do something about it. Right now, the nation seems to be concerned about gun violence only when there's a mass shooting. And for a short period of time after that, there's a great amount of concern. And then it seems to just disappear. For this to truly be a public health problem or considered as a public health problem, uh, we have to have a permanent plan in place to try to prevent gun violence. Um, one example of something that could be done if we were to look at this as a public health issue is to designate some office in the federal government, in the Department of Health and Human Services, as a gun violence prevention office. For almost every other public health problem you can think of, there is a dedicated office to deal with that. Smoking, there's an office on smoking and health at CDC. Uh, even tuberculosis, there's a specific office at CDC that deals with tuberculosis. They're dedicated to the goal of eradicating tuberculosis, but there's no federal office 
whose goal is to reduce or, or uh, ameliorate the gun violence problem. The second thing that it means to treat gun violence as a public health problem is that in addition to simply looking at the overall morbidity and mortality from gun violence, we have to look at the racial inequities and try to reduce or eliminate the racial inequities. This is an issue where there are greater racial inequities than any other public health issue that I've seen. People who are black are five times more likely to die from uh, firearm homicide than people who are white. And that controls for, for population that is looking at rates of death. So there's tremendous racial inequities. And if we're really gonna view this as a public health problem, and treat it as a public health problem, then we need to confront not just the overall toll of gun violence, but the striking racial disparities. Third, and perhaps most important and, and least well-recognized by the public, is what makes a public health issue is looking at the issue as a problem of the entire public, not just part of the public and not pitting one group against another. For all public health issues, we look at that issue as if the entire population, the entire public is our client who we're trying to help ameliorate the problem. We don't divide into good guys or bad guys or, or people who are causing the problem or people who are not causing the problem. Unfortunately, in this issue, there has been a division of gun owners versus non-gun non -gun owners. And unfortunately, I feel that a lot of people in public health have essentially made gun owners feel like they're being blamed for the problem. This will be another episode, a coming uh, episode of, of Siegel Scope, but we're going to talk about assault weapon bans. And I think that in those policies in particular have led gun owners to feel alienated, to feel like they're being blamed for the problem. That's not public health. Public health is looking at the issue as one of the entire public versus the gun lobby, um, because truly it's the NRA, the gun lobby, that's the, really the major obstacle to passing meaningful legislation. Um, to the best of my knowledge, the NRA doesn't support any legislation whatsoever. They don't want anything to be done. Uh, they don't support any bill that could potentially uh, reduce gun violence. And so that's where the problem lies. It's not with gun owners, it's with the gun lobby. Viewing gun violence as a public health issue means that gun owners and non-gun owners need to come together and as a united front, go up against the gun lobby and convert this issue uh, from being perceived as one of gun owners versus non-gun owners to being perceived as all of us, the public, versus the gun lobby. Back to you, Matt. I'm Matthew Lippman, your host of TAG. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, we'd love for you to subscribe to us at Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you're welcome to rate us as well. Give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at 97%org and tag who you'd like us to interview next. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.